0: The scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. They said to them, How is it then David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, sir. Good morning, everybody. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, It is wonderful to be with you, and we're going to get in the scriptures, Matthew 22, I, uh, my name's Evan, if you're new, and my wife Sandy and I, she, she's the one singing with me up here today. We have, she and I have the joy of leading this church, and we are working our way through a series about the Bible. Normally, if you're familiar with church, you're like, every, every church series is about the Bible. Yes, but this one's actually about how we think about the Bible, and, and here's, the, here's the title of it, God Breathed which is what today's teaching is all about. What does that word mean, God-breathed? What does it mean that when we say the Bible is breathed by God? Um, and so we're, we're looking at what the Bible is and why it carries authority. So next slide. What do we mean? Next, Yeah, yeah, here you go. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is the word of God? What do we mean when we say that? Uh, we mean that the Bible is a divinely communicated message from God to us. At the same time, it's also a thoroughly human book, both, thoroughly human book. The authors, languages, events, issues, they're all thoroughly human stuff. So the question a lot of people have, maybe you have it, is which parts are the divine parts and which parts are the human parts? And the answer is yes, right? So so which raises another question, how did God get his message into and through humans? How did he do that? And all these questions we're asking are are asking about inspiration. So this is all about inspiration. So inspiration, or Paul's word, God breathed. Paul literally made up, we think he made up that word writing 2 Timothy. God breathed. It appears nowhere else in ancient Greek literature before that. God breathed. It's a word that explains how the Bible can be both from God and totally from humans. Now, right away, I have to say, inspiration, the God-breathedness of the Bible, it's a tricky word. Inspiration is a tricky word for English speakers because saying something is inspired can mean different things, right? For example, I've written love songs uh, uh, to Sandy in my life. I've written love songs to Sandy. I could could say that those songs were inspired by Sandy. but question: Does that mean Sandy had something to do with the writing of the songs in my "Through Me"? No. So you could see, like the word "inspiration" or being inspired, it has like a range of meaning. Or, or if I said, "Hey, that TED Talk was inspired," you see that TED Talk that just changes your life. I don't know if you've seen the one about procrastination and the procrastination monkey. Have you seen that one? It's so good. You gotta watch it. Uh, that that thing is inspired. But when I say that, I don't mean that every word of that TED Talk was somehow divine revelation coming off the TED Talk stage, word for word, right? So when someone says the Scriptures, oops, do I need to move around, no? When someone says the Scriptures are inspired or God-breathed, when Paul says that, he means something more than just, man, ancient people were so pumped about God, they were so inspired by their love for God that they just wrote, that God inspired the Bible that way. That's not what Paul means. He doesn't mean it like they wrote a love song to God. And that's not how the church has historically talked about the Bible. And it's not how Jesus talked about the Bible, which brings us to our text. As we look at this story, what we're going to see, you guys, in this text, Jesus weighs in on two of the most important questions human beings can wrestle with. I think these are the most important questions you, San Diego people, can wrestle with. Uh, What's the Bible is, is somewhat important compared to, but ultimately it's important because that second question is important. Who is the Messiah? These two questions are connected at a deep level, and hopefully that's what you see today. So whether you're coming to church, you're new to church, new to the Bible, and you're already bored because this sermon is about inspiration and God breathed and ancient texts, I really hope you see these two questions and you ask, why are those so important for me? Because that is the question of the day. They're connected and relevant because here's, here's why. Today our culture is suspicious, suspicious of authority. And rightly so. We've all seen and heard of authority abuse. And a big part of our postmodern culture is a suspicion of authority because every authority we assume is a claim to power and oppress other people. That's just kind of the ethos of the day. So when someone talks about submitting to the Bible or submitting to doctrine, our cultural impulse is to pull back and go, but really why? And what's really happening? And who's really trying to use and abuse me right now? And a lot of that suspicion is warranted, absolutely, because we've seen and heard of abuse, which is why these questions are important. When it comes to the Bible and Jesus, people are wondering, but what is the Bible really? And who is the Messiah really? And why should we bow to Him? Why would I take my desires and give them back to Jesus and then, tell, and then, and then receive His commands instead of what my desires say? That's really what we're talking about. And, like I've mentioned twice already in this series, my daughter, who's 10, she kind of nailed it. She's only 10, and she's like, how do I know that this Bible, during a family Bible reading, she's like, how do I know this Bible wasn't just given by the government to us? So that, like, I don't, I don't I'm suspicious. She's suspicious. And that's, a lot of that is very, very healthy. So we got to go there. This is where Jesus goes. So this is where we're going today in the text. And so to get at those two questions, what's the Bible and who's the Messiah, anyway, to get to those questions, Jesus takes his audience there in this text, and it's a confrontation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel in Jesus' day. So this passage is the end of a two-chapter-long, dramatic kind of word war between the Pharisees and Jesus, and it's all building up to this final encounter. Up to now, the Pharisees have been the ones peppering Jesus with questions. But now Jesus turns the tables, and he goes on the offense and asks them a question. Pharisees famously trapped Jesus, tried to trap Jesus with questions, but now Jesus traps them with a question. He rarely does this, and he does it here, and it's this leading question. You get the feeling this is what this is all building up to. And so here's the question Jesus asks. Here's the Jesus trap for the Pharisees. It's pretty awesome. He says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And so in order to get what's going on here, it's powerful for us. We first have to back up and understand the Pharisees. So quick word on these guys. The Pharisees, I, I actually want to, I suggest these guys get a bad rap today. Pharisees get a bad rap uh, because they had really good desires. Uh, the Pharisees get framed as legalists today, like religious bigots. Like we throw that word at someone when we think they're a fundy or you're such a Pharisee, right? Uh, but that's not the picture. That's not the full picture. The Pharisees are really important characters in the Gospels to think about. Why? Because they show us our tendency toward both tradition. On one hand and progressivism on the other. When Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, Jesus reveals how faithfulness to God looks different than both traditionalism and progressivism. So, so this is what the Pharisees show us in this text. So the Pharisees are traditionalists. On one hand, they're traditionalists. Why? Because they really want everyone in Israel to obey Torah, to obey the Scriptures. Why? Because they believed if everyone in Israel could just obey, the Messiah would come. That would bring the kingdom. So they wanted the kingdom. Good, good desire or bad desire? Good. Like, they wanted a good thing. They wanted God's rule, which meant Rome's fall. They wanted God's rule, and they figured perfect obedience to Torah would bring it. That's kind of, in, at, at its core, a good desire. So in a sense, they're traditionalists. But, but, but they're also progressives in a sense because while they absolutely wanted everyone to obey, they also, you know what they did? They added reinterpretations and updates and adjustments to the scriptures to make it as easy as possible for people to obey. That is a progressive in, in, in inclination. That's a progressive tendency to readjust, asterisk, asterisk, After adjustment of the scriptures in order to make it more practical, more common sense to obey. This is what the Pharisees would do with the text. They'd add yes buts to every law. Yes but, yes but. Which is why New Testament scholar Scott McKnight uses the term lenient and progressive. He used that term to describe the Pharisees. Here's from Scott McKnight, one of the best New Testament scholars alive. He says, the stereotype that the Pharisees were legalists, it just tells a fraction of their story. The bigger story is that they want to help people observe the law in ways that make sense and are practicable. Yes, yes, they were first century Jewish progressives when it came to law observance. The Pharisees challenged the sufficiency of Torah, Scripture. They challenged that it's enough in favor of a tradition that makes obedience doable for more people. Jesus rejects their non-scriptural authority of tradition. Pharisees undermine holiness. They clean the outside of a cup, thinking the whole cup was then clean. Jesus saw the Pharisees as hypocrites. Jesus actually labeled them hypocrites for this. He's criticizing their leniency and commitment to tradition instead of what the law teaches. So, this is who Jesus is addressing right now. People who carry the name of God in vain. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't carry the name of God in vain, but that's what the Pharisees are doing. They claim faithfulness to to God while updating God's words to fit the current mood and make Scripture easier to obey for more people. Okay, does this sound familiar? Does this tendency sound familiar to anyone in the room? Uh, So, and I want to say this, hopefully this doesn't offend too much. If you're thinking of those people out there that update the scriptures to fit the mood, if you're thinking of that group over there, then you might be missing the point. (laughs) Because there will always be plenty of people out there trying to play fast and loose with the Bible. But the question to ask, how am I relating to scripture and the authority of God in my life? Like, where am I playing the Pharisee? Where am I looking for interpretations of the Bible that fit my personal preference and make it easier to do what I want? With my, what I want with my money. Yeah, I know the Bible says to just cheerfully give more than I can afford. The widow with two mites, she gave everything she had. If I did that, I'd be out of house and home. Or do whatever I want with my body or do what I want with my possessions, with my chosen vocation, how I choose to entertain myself, how much I eat, how much I drink, how I think about and participate in violence, or how I refuse to forgive. This is really a question, this might be on your discussion guides for the community groups this week. Where am I shopping for an interpretation of the Bible that fits my desires, Instead of submitting my desires in radical obedience to the full authority of Jesus in the text. Because wherever I'm shopping for an interpretation, that's where I'm a Pharisee. Yeah. And honestly, friends, we've all been there, myself included. This, is, this Pharisee tendency, it, it lives in all of us. So, as we come to a text where Jesus is speaking to Pharisees about how to respect the inspired text, Jesus is really talking to all of us. And so, here it is again. They're shopping for an interpretation, and Jesus cuts through it. And here it is again the the, the question he asks While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. When Jesus asked them, whose son is the Messiah, this was a value question. He's asking, what is is the Messiah made of? What's the Messiah worth? Where will his status and authority come from? And they're like, it comes from the best place, the best king. In all of history, there's no king higher than David. David's the ultimate. So obviously the Messiah is the son of David. He's good pedigree, which isn't... False. Jesus is the son of David. That was a Jewish belief at the time. And still Messiah is the son of David. Because David was the most loved, celebrated warrior king, he was gonna bring the fall of all the enemies. So to say the Messiah was the son of David was to say the Messiah is gonna be the most important authority human on the planet. <laughs> And so you can imagine the Pharisees, they're getting ready to debate Jesus here. Because Jesus, they can put two and two together. They're like, oh, no, no, no. He's not claiming the son of David. He's not claiming that's who he is. They're, they're, on, their, they're on their tiptoes, leaning forward, ready to fight. And it, but then Jesus throws them a curveball. He hits them with a curve. And he does it with Scripture. And they love the Scriptures. So he does it with the Bible. And as Jesus does this curveball with the Bible, we get a view into what Jesus thinks the Bible is. It's amazing. Check out the beginning of Jesus' curveball response. Look at this. So that he's the son of David. And Jesus says, okay, well then, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? So, so you see what, so fascinating what Jesus is doing here. In that single sentence, first of all, Jesus shows us what he thinks the Bible is. Jesus is about to quote Psalm 110 which has David as the author of the psalm. So according to Jesus in that verse, who wrote Psalm 110? David. I'm going to ask you again. According to Jesus in that verse, who wrote Psalm 110? David. The Holy Spirit. David speaking by the Spirit said so, for Jesus, the Bible is a divine and thoroughly human word. This is how we talk about the Bible. The Bible's thoroughly human and uniquely divine word. And I want to say, over the last hundred years, especially in America, this really weird culture has formed around the Bible. Uh, it's funny how Americans are kind of known across the rest of the world theologically for our unique take on the Bible in some ways, we, because in America, we like to divide. We like our rights and our lefts and our donkeys and our elephants and our conservative liberal divides. We like everything kind of divided, and, and so in America, we live in the wake of a conservative liberal divide about the Bible that started about a century or two ago, and you guys were still stuck there, especially in, in America it's taken a a, a peculiar shape. It's a a problem. We're stuck in this either-or, us-versus-them way of thinking about the Bible. As a general rule, conservatives... Which which way is right for you? Conservatives, as a general rule, emphasize the divine side of the Bible. Conservatives emphasize the fact that the Bible is the words of God. Because 2 Timothy 3.16... All-time favorite verse for conservatives. All scriptures God-breathed. And we love that verse. It's literally the title of our series. It's true. On the other hand, progressives who are all over a city like San Diego emphasize the human side of the Bible. So to a progressive, the Bible's seen more as literature and man's thoughts from a long time ago about God and humans and life and its poems and beautiful and lots of it is really out of step with the modern world and needs adjustment in its application. So, so now, these two sides, these two sides, they like to throw grenades back and forth at each other. But I, I want you to know, that either-or thinking is so off. To Jesus, there's no doubt it's both of, it's both of those. David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, said both to Jesus the Bible's human David said and to Jesus the Bible's divine speaking by the Holy Spirit this is how Jesus talked about the scriptures uh, and 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 it's like it's it's divine which means God somehow uniquely breathed this library of books in a way that he didn't breathe any other books And it's human, meaning David wrote it. He woke up one day and was overwhelmed and he had to write it down. Or he was just practicing Judaism and wrote it down. And Paul said that. And these humans decided. They made their own decisions to decide to write from prison cells and wherever else. And their personalities are in the text. The human personalities are in the text. And their cultural lenses and their fingerprints are all over this thing. This is not a dirty little secret. The Bible's not hiding the fact that it's a thoroughly human book. It's not hiding it. Paul, he, this is funny. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he t- he's t- talking about marriage and divorce between believers and unbelievers in 1 Corinthians 7. And here's a paraphrase. Paul basically says in verse 12, 1 Corinthians seven twelve, he's like, you know, I don't really know what Jesus thinks about this, but here's my like, official take. How is that authoritative? It is. But it's also thoroughly human because you like, I don't know if Jesus thinks this. Paul having a dialogue about what he thinks or might not think. And it's authority. So the Bible isn't hiding this stuff. It's not a secret. The scriptures are... Hu- so I want to put it on the slide once and for all. The scriptures are human, written by men and women. Yes, women contribute to the text. We have Mary and Miriam quoted in the text, uh, writing songs and poems. And at the same time, unlike any other books in the world, the scriptures are god-breathed, which means they come to us the way God wants them to, and they carry God's very own authority. This is how Jesus thinks about the scriptures. And Paul does put it that way in 2 Timothy 3:16, all scripture is god-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And there's that word again, god-breathed. Our, our series title, it's one word in Greek. God Breathe is one Greek word, probably, again, made up by Paul. And in English, it's usually translated inspired. If you have a... If you have a most English Bibles say inspired in that, in, that, in that verse. This is how Jesus and his followers think about the Bible. I love how Peter says it, Second Peter 1. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the God-breathedness of the writing of Scripture. I love it. And here's how N.T. Wright talks about this. He's one of the most celebrated theologians alive today, and he says it like this. Inspiration, or God-breathed, is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books God intended his people to have. You can trust this thing as from God. Doesn't make it easier to understand because we use our noodles and we use our community and we pray the power of the Holy Spirit and we keep reading. So when you're reading the Bible, don't imagine Moses on a mountain Or David, the musical shepherd, just making stuff up because they just love God so much. No, when you read this library of ancient writings, you are reading the words of God. Just let that sink in. When you wake up tomorrow morning and you read Mark 10 in your bread readings, just think about the gravity of this, you guys. How sobering it is. You're reading the words of God himself and thoroughly human. I'm trying to play ping pong right now. It's thoroughly human. It, you guys, it's thoroughly human, meaning it has dirt under its fingernails. You're also reading the emotions of Moses on a certain day. And King David and the disturbed prophet Jeremiah and Paul. So, so on one hand, don't imagine a bunch of ancient writers making stuff up. On the other hand, don't imagine David in a field just... Downloading the Bible from God like a meat puppet with his eyes rolled back, and he's just dictated. And, and we laugh at the meat puppet holy download view. Uh, it sounds funny, but it's actually, I, I come across this a lot. Like, people, many, especially American, maybe that's because of the context I, I know, but I come in, in contact with a lot of people who assume the meat puppet holy download view of the Bible. It's, but it's not how Jesus or his followers view the Bible. That is, meat Puppet, Holy Download, that is, as far as I know, how Muslims believe the Koran came and what Mormons believe about Joseph Smith and how the Book of Mormon came, that literal golden tablets from the sky. But that's never been the historic Christian view about the Bible coming. Just read and read this thing. Watch how God works with humans in the story. He works through free, creative, brilliant, relational human beings because God is a God of collaboration. God breathed out the inspired Bible through human writers, and in doing so, he didn't erase or bypass the writer's personality, mind, vocabulary, culture, even their worldview. Even their worldview comes through. Statements like, the sky stands on the pillars of the earth, and the dome, the vault of the sky, stands above the pillars of the earth. Some, I've, I don't think anyone's found the pillars. And the sky is not a dome, just looks that way because the earth is a sphere, something their worldview didn't know. But God didn't bother correcting them. He worked through their worldview to speak a message for all time. This is how Jesus views the scriptures, thoroughly human, uniquely divine, which brings us to the major issue. This is the issue Jesus is addressing in this passage that Nathan Shoup read over us. Jesus uses the scriptures to force his hearers to wrestle with this question, what do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about the Messiah? It's all wrapped up in what do you think about the Bible question? What do you think about him? Who do you think he is? I say again, this is is probably the most important question humanity can wrestle with. The question from which all questions flow. Why? Because for Israel, the Messiah wasn't just the King of Israel who would save Israel and satisfy Israel's deepest longings, but he would save and satisfy the deepest longings of every nation including 2023 San Diego in America, Jesus is the Messiah of San Diego. Jesus is the King of America. He's the, he's the true political ruler of America. Jesus is. And, and so, so this is why this matters. So, that, so remember, Jesus asked this question, who do you think, the, who do you think about the Messiah? What, whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer, he's a son of David. Because they think he comes from a great line, downstream from David. Check it out. Here it is again. And Jesus responds, Well, then how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? If you think the Messiah is downstream from David, how come David looks upstream and submits to him? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, if David calls him Lord upstream, how can he be his son Downstream. Which one is it? And this is the brilliance of Jesus. Instead of arguing, instead of just saying, hey, I'm I'm the son of David, believe in me, instead of just going straight for the blunt force, he shocks them with this unexpected argument that the Messiah is downstream and upstream of David. He is human and he is divine and greater than David. He's David's son, but he's more than that, he's David's authority. The most authoritative figure you can imagine, Jesus is the authority of that. And and, and it's amazing that Jesus uses their Bible to to prove this to them, and and he drops the mic. It's a literal mic drop. Look at at the verse afterwards. No one could say a word in reply. From that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. (laughs) He quotes from their own songbook. Psalm 110, verse 1, to show from David's own words that his son was his Lord. The son is the Lord. Here's the whole psalm. You guys look at this. This is about Jesus. And David wrote it. Psalm 110. It's it's not very long. In fact, if you guys could read the evens, I'll read the odd. And we're just going to enter this psalm. So I'll start. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You got verse 2. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He'll drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. That's Psalm 110. And everyone in Jesus' day believed this psalm was about the amazing things the Messiah would do. He'd be a conquering king. Every nation would fall at his feet. He'd be a priest forever, meaning he'd perfectly represent God to humans and humans to God. And he's the judge of all nations. He's the one who's going to account for every oppressive boot on the neck of every marginalized, oppressed people. Jesus would come and fix it all. But for whatever reason, the Pharisees missed the first line of the psalm. Either that or they just couldn't figure it out. And, and, And they're like, why would King David... Call the Messiah his Lord. It makes no sense at all. For David, already the highest king of Israel, to call another human his king. Unless, unless the human Messiah is something more. Jesus is brilliant here. He's making them think. Bingo. The human Messiah is something more. He's Jesus saying, yes, the Messiah is David's son, and he's also more. And who, or maybe what, is the Messiah If he's more than human, then not just who, but what is he? And the key is in the next line, Matthew 22, verse 44. He's quoting Psalm 110. Look at this line, that second line. Sit at my right hand. The creator says to the son of David, hey, son of David, come sit on an equal plane with me. So God invites the human Messiah to sit at the right hand of God Not below God's feet, not above God's head, but next to God. As high as God sits. So the human Messiah, Jesus, sits at God's right hand. Why? Because Jesus is also divine and one with God, one with Yahweh. He shares unity and authority with the Father and the Holy Spirit because he's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is both fully human in every sense and fully God in every sense. And you guys, this is what Christians have always believed for 2,000 years, and it's this two natures doctrine. The church has believed that this two natures doctrine is the best way to solve this riddle. How can the, here's the riddle, how can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? And it's the two natures doctrine. As F.D. Bruner puts it, Jesus is David's son as man, and David's Lord as God. This is why we are Christians. This is what we live and confess. We don't just believe that. We actually let our lives flow from that confession. And the confession on paper, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. That's why we have it on our church website, under beliefs. And and just for good measure, we're going to put the first part of Nicaea up on the screen. You guys, this is the fountainhead of our faith in word form here. So uh, from, from the 4th century A.D., when Christians are trying to make sense what the heck just happened with the whole Christ event. What on earth just happened? When God entered human life through the womb of a woman, what happened? And for centuries, they start, the Spirit led their dialogue and then it was codified. It was official right here in Nicaea, and they put it in writing, and and we still say it. So can we say this together? This is the first part of the creed. Ready? Let's go. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And the creed goes on and talks about his crucifixion and then the Holy Spirit. And it would be wonderful to walk through the whole creed on church, maybe through Advent this year. The point is, the historic church has always looked at this Matthew text. Son of David, also Lord of David and other texts, and all this evidence that Jesus was both fully human in every way and fully God in every sense. So we, the global church, we base our entire worldview on this reality that Jesus has these two natures. And, and so, so this begs the ultimate question. We've asked it a bunch already. It came to Israel's leaders and now it's coming to Park Hill. And if you're visiting Park Hill, would you please wrestle with this? Would you let this question do something to you? Who do you, what do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about him? At one point or another, every single one of us has to deal with that question. And our answer is more than just a mental agreement with the doctrine of two natures. Because we can read the Nicene Creed out loud every week for 50 years and still refuse to live under Jesus' authority. What do you think about the Messiah? As evidenced by your living. So let me ask the question another way. What do you think motivated Paul to die a martyr with joy? What do you think motivated Perpetua in 208 AD to walk calmly to her execution even though she knew it would mean her baby would grow up without a mother. What do you think motivated the long list of missionaries and martyrs through history to deny their comforts in order to live out the mission of an ancient Jewish rabbi? You guys, they believe that that Jewish rabbi, Jesus, was also the embodiment of God and the Lord of the world. And, and they knew that acknowledging that meant obeying his teachings because that led to fullness of joy even when my circumstances don't make sense. By practicing Jesus' way, they believed they were stepping into an eternal kingdom that God was bringing into the world. So, so, so from where I'm standing, in light of this text and who Jesus is, I see those two main questions for us. What do you think about the Messiah? Is he the authority of your life? In other words, are you obeying him? Are you obeying his teachings? And this question connects to an obvious second question, which is what do you think about the Messiah's book? They're almost the same question. Because the way the Messiah mediates his authority over his people is through the scriptures. I think Jesus is great, but I'm not sure about the Bible. I'm looking for an, I'm shopping for interpretations that fit my desires. The way of the Pharisee is incompatible with the way of Jesus. And I say this not to shame anyone, but to hopefully incite an awakening (laughs) to the reality of the king. The king is coming. He's already come. His authority is already being joyfully lived out by the church in the face of murder and martyrdom and persecution and micro-persecution that we see in America. So what do you think about the Messiah is tied to what do you think about the Messiah's book? What do you think about the Bible? What do you think about the Bible? And I realize just that this room, you know, I I have probably five minutes left in this teaching, and then we'll come to the table. And I just want to be—I just want to call it that this room is all over the map about the Bible. I don't—I don't think that's a wild guess. I think that's probably accurate. And just walking with a lot of you over the years, some of you are on the progressive, more progressive, liberal side of the spectrum. And so for you, the idea of the Bible as divinely inspired, and that as a Jesus follower, you live under the authority of this ancient library with your whole body and mind, even though so much of it seems so out of step with the modern age in San Diego, I realize for a lot of us, that's a hard pill to swallow. Like I feel that impulse in myself. Having grown up much more conservative, my tendency is to swing progressive. And I feel that impulse. That impulse to add the asterisks and to shop for interpretations that make it easier to obey. So some of us are like that. And I'll, for a lot of you, on the other hand, maybe you grew up in a conservative setting like I did. And and you kind of view the Bible as Holy Download, Golden Tablets, and the idea of the Bible as a library of ancient documents that you have to work hard to understand and know context, and it wasn't written in English, and the culture, and the is this metaphor that I'm reading? Is this literal? Can I, am I even allowed to ask that? Like, that can make you feel nervous, and I feel that too, like I have that deep in my bones. I grew up in a church tradition that had a very specific way of reading the Bible, It's a way of reading that, in the last 10 or 20 years, has come to be called biblicism. Biblicism is a huge issue. The basic idea, which is how millions of conservatives in America read the Bible, is biblicism says, the Bible is an encyclopedia of truth, timeless owner's manual for life. And it's like this low view of the Bible as literature, like David Wade so eloquently taught last week as the Bible is literature that's alive. Biblicism just kind of sidesteps that conversation, and the humanness of the Bible is downplayed. It's that famous quote, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, that we talked about from study one in this series. And it's that kind of approach to the Bible, and it's not all wrong. I love the faith and the trust, the childlike faith. Jesus loves the childlike faith of that, too. And there's timeless truth, and the Bible is timeless truth for sure, but the problem with Biblicism, with that way of reading the Bible, is basically that the Bible just doesn't behave. The Bible just doesn't play by the rules that, in particular, conservative Americans set up for it. The Bible just does its own thing. It's not an encyclopedia. It's something else entirely. It's something far deeper and more profound and fascinating and provocative, and it challenges both the right and the left. And so what happens is this way of reading the Bible, this biblicism, Bible science and truth, it's an encyclopedia, we can know everything about science from the Bible. You guys, that view is a crisis of faith waiting to happen for every college freshman. I remember hearing this, This biblicist take preached at a church 20 years ago that I was a part of, and it was kind of a last straw moment for me where the person held up a certain view of science and said, if you deny this, then you're denying the authority of scripture. You might make it to heaven, but you'll make it to heaven with an authority issue, like that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, man, this guy's keeping people from Jesus. It's a crisis of faith waiting to happen. It's just a matter of time. And that is part of my story. There came a a point in my walk with Jesus where easy answers that I was getting from the church, they weren't satisfactory anymore. And I I remember being a youth pastor in the late 90s, early 2000s, leading worship or teaching with the youth, and I'm I'm responsible to teach them. And I remember having this secret feeling like after I preached to the youth, I'm like, was anything I just said even true? (laughs) And that is no fun to be in that place get out of that place somehow. Be honest with God and your community to get out of that place through telling the truth to people you trust. But out of that crisis, something beautiful was born in me. Rather than walking away from Jesus and Bible, I realized my problem wasn't the Bible. My problem was Biblicism. It was this very odd way of reading the Bible. That was my problem. And I discovered there's this whole other ancient global, church-wide way of reading the Bible that rises above the, the niche American conservative liberal divide. And it goes all the way back to Jesus and the New Testament and 1950 years of church talking about the gospel. And it's reading the Bible as both literature and scripture, thoroughly human, uniquely divine, messy, yet unified story that leads to a person, Jesus. Jesus. And this has been so eye-opening for me. This is the, the conversation that lights me up so much in my life. I basically spent the last 18 years of my life relearning the Bible from the bottom up, uh, which is why Sandy and I planted this church around the Bible, because we want to devote the rest of our lives to, this, to this, this thing called the way of Jesus and His authority through the Scriptures. Because here's why. There's so much life in Jesus' name. And the Scriptures take us to Him. And I want that for you. I want, I want the life of Jesus for you. Every, I don't think any of us would raise our hand if, like, who doesn't want the life of Jesus for their neighbor? I don't think any of us would raise our hand to that. But Jesus wrapped up his life with two other words. I am the way and the truth and the life. We all want the life of Jesus, but he, he, he would not separate it from the truth of what God has revealed. And the scriptures are that. Entirely. And, and so here's the end. My prayer for you is that wherever you're at with the Bible, whether you love it or hate it, or you don't care, you're like, I just don't I don't think about it that often. Whether you can't wait to wake up in the morning tomorrow and read Mark chapter 10. <laughs> or you're dreading the idea of being alone with your own thoughts and the spirit of God and the Bible and it just sounds like a drag, wherever you're at, my hope for you is that you would step into the journey of reading and knowing Jesus through the Bible together as a church. My hope is that when you wake up this week and you pour your coffee, whatever you, tea, I don't know, some of you, guys. I'm surprised at how many people just don't drink coffee anymore. I keep meeting them. Um, so you wake up this week and you pour your morning beverage. And you, and you read Mark 10 in your bread reading. My prayer for you is that you would find beauty and truth and wisdom for sure. But most of all, you would find Jesus there. This person who's always persistently pursuing you would be there would be an apocalypse. The veil would come down, and you'd behold him. You'd behold him. You'd see him. And, and listen, your questions about the Bible won't all be solved tomorrow morning at Mark 10. You will still have those questions. I still have a bunch. I feel like I always have, I have more. Every time I get one answered, there's like two more that are like just spun off. But I love Peter's words to Jesus in a time of crisis. Jesus gave a hard teaching and then people bailed and he turns to Peter and Jesus is like, so Peter, you going to leave too? And Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Only Jesus. The words of eternal life are in Jesus and in this book, Jesus mediates his goodness and authority through this library. So my prayer for you all, me included, is that as you open your Bibles day after day and together in your communities that you would find life in the name of Jesus. So can we stand together? And we're gonna come to communion and receive life from Jesus, his body and blood. I love that scripture is really one of the four things that the early church did. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's scripture, and in the breaking of bread, that's what we're about to do, and prayer and fellowship. All these things happen today, every Sunday, and we'll do them forever. Like I I, I like to say it when me and Sandy and the kids drive home from church, like, how was church? How do you feel about it? I'm like, there's another brick in the wall. There's another brick in the wall of the house God's building with those four things. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you lead us to your table? Having confessed our sin and considered your authority for our lives. Lord, I pray we would, we would not be Pharisees shopping for interpretations to fit our current path. But right now, coming to your table, we're saying we're ready to bail on our own path if it means walking yours. Your way. Have your way. Have your road in this church. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So, just as a statement of submission to Christ, come forward and, and say yes to receiving him today. All around the room, there's four tables. And during this next song, we're going to sing of the suffering of Jesus. Um, come forward uh, just to say uh, we, submit, we submit to the goodness and authority of Jesus. So feel free to come forward now as we sing. And then bring the bread and cup back to your seat. And we'll eat and drink once we're all back together.